Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers, both inside and outside of medicine. Recharge and refocus with incredible stories, unique perspectives, and unforgettable conversations. Get ready to see what's working. Get ready to see what's ahead. Get ready to see things differently. Get ready for Peer Spectrum. Now your hosts, Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. Today we're happy to have Quentin Anderson with us. Quentin is a recognized expert in scientific and industrial animations. After completing not one, but two master's degrees at Harvard, Quentin began his career in animations, eventually starting his own company, which he runs today. What are scientific animations, you might ask? They are powerful visual tools that can significantly reduce the time it takes to communicate and conceptualize complex scientific ideas and models. We're going to explore Quentin's research as a graduate student and his published article in Nature. Quentin has found that people learn three times more effectively with video than with text and images. With animations, the effect is four times as effective. You're going to find real practical applications you can take away from this episode. We'll learn how you can use animations to reach a larger and more targeted audience for your published research. We'll learn about a family physician who used animations to explain complex pathologies and treatments to his patients before they came into the exam room. This resulted in tremendous time savings in clinic and more productive time with each patient. This was a fascinating episode with a lot of new information for many of you, so you'll definitely want to check out the show notes after. With that said, let's get started. Quentin, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Yes, thanks for having me, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Quentin, for coming on. Yeah, we had had a, an excellent conversation offline when I first met you. Um, so you're a, uh, you work as a digital animator, is that right? Uh, yes, sir. I use animation to explain complicated science and technology. So my goal is to use animation to explain either tools or medical devices or pharmaceutical drugs, how they work in the body, so that they're easier for people to understand. Okay. And um, how did you uh, find yourself in this, uh, involved in this field? It's fascinating. Uh, it's a bit of an interesting story. I was actually pre-med as an undergrad, and I'm sitting there and I'm studying for a cell biology exam. And I remember my professor had mentioned that he had provided a link to a video on YouTube covering all the aspects of cell biology that I was studying for this exam. And my first thought was, well, we don't use animation to, to learn about cell biology in, under, in undergraduate studies. But it was getting late and I was under the gun to get ready for the exam. So I watched the video and I, I actually had chills the first time I watched it because it made cell biology so easy to understand. After watching, it was, it's a seven minute video. It's called The Inner Life of the Cell. And some of your viewers may have seen it. It's pretty popular. And it basically goes from soup to nuts, the entire process of how the cell works. And after I saw this animation, the topics that I was trying to understand made so much more sense to me. And this, it had such an impact on me that at the end of the video, they rolled the credits and there's this group called BioVisions and they were based out of Harvard University. And I was so moved by the video, I contacted them. And I told them my story, I'm a pre-med student, but I watched this video on how you guys showed the cell through animation. Uh, is there any chance that I could potentially learn this? And they said, well, you know what? If you want to come up to Harvard and learn it, then we'll do, we'll teach you. And so 
I thought about it and I, and I looked at it this way. It's, I was going to enroll in the School of Education at Harvard and it's a one year, it was a one year uh, master's. And I thought, okay, at the end of, I'll give it a shot, see how it goes. And at the end of one year, I like it, then I'll stick with it. If I don't, then I can just use this as a little way to distinguish me when I'm applying for med school. And so I get accepted and I, and I go up to Harvard and after I unpack, the first thing I do is go over to BioVisions and basically say, I'm here. And they're a little surprised, I think, that, they, that someone actually took them up on their offer because, um, and they said, well, welcome. Um, this is what we can do for you. We have an internship available uh, if you want to learn Flash. And I don't know how familiar uh, your audience is with Flash, but it's basically a coding language used that you can use to create animations. Um, but it's somewhat antiquated. And at the time, I wasn't convicted that this was the way things were going. And, you know, this was seven years ago, and it turned out to be the case. Um, so I said, you know, thank you for the opportunity, but um, I don't know if this is right. So I was a little defeated because I had this huge, you know, visions of coming up here and working with BioVisions and helping grow the company and you know, working with them. Uh, but that didn't happen at all. So I'm, I'm there at school and I just, I'm wondering, crud, you know, what am I going to do? Um, but since I was in the School of Education, uh, there was plenty of professors and students there that were also passionate about learning and teaching. And it kind of taught me just to turn a, uh, when, when you get lemons, make lemonade. It was sort of one of those life moments. And I surrounded myself with professors and, and students that were passionate about teaching. And I focused on how we can use animation to explain certain topics. And it, I just, it has, and I just stuck with it. I decided that this is what I wanted to do. And I focused on that uh, from there on out. That's great. What do you think it is about animation that makes it so um, uh, good at the educational thing? It process. So it, it it took me, and and I actually did back to back masters there because I was so interested in the idea. And it and I still don't know if I can truly say what the answer is after two years. My belief is that because medicine happens in three in three dimensions of space and three dimensions of time. So for example, if we're looking how a drug interacts with a patient inside their body, uh, this happens in three dimensions of space, three dimensions of time. Or if we're looking at how a surgeon performs a surgical procedure, this also happens in the same constraints. And because animation, you can recreate that environment, I believe it makes it a very appropriate medium to, as a learning tool for those specific instances. Um, if, if you look at other examples, such as learning foreign languages, Animation wouldn't be as appropriate because learning a foreign language is you know, mostly about reading the text and the words, maybe some visual cues and whatnot, and also interacting with other people that know the language. So animation wouldn't be as an effective of a tool, but when it comes to biology and the medicine, it's incredibly good at capturing what we need to communicate to people in order for them to understand it. But but you do um, you did do some work that uh, that sort of looked at the comparison between animated text and animation and uh, regular text, isn't that right? Uh, in terms of learning, correct. So I while I was there, I did a study 
and I took students who had two classes in science, undergraduate science classes or less, and I asked them to learn about type 2 diabetes. And I had two groups. One group, I had the information presented how we traditionally present information. So it was basically text with 2D static images. And the second group, I had all the information, all everything contained in this animation that explained exactly how type 2 diabetes works in the body and sort of the symptoms that manifest from type 2 diabetes. So it was the same information, just just presented two completely different ways. And after, after the students reviewed the information, uh, the students that learned the information through animation scored around 90%, on average 90%. Uh, the students who learned the same information through text scored 80%. Hmm. And here's the interesting thing. The video was actually 13 minutes and 19 seconds long animation. And, but for the students who learned the information through text, it took them around, on average, 19 minutes to learn the same information. So not only did the students perform better on the assessment, they actually learned the information about seven minutes faster than the students who learned the exact same information through text and static images. Wow, that's fascinating. Obviously, there's a lot more data supporting this. I mean, we did a little research here before the uh, the episode. You know, doctors, Quentin, they always want to show me the evidence. That's what they always say, show me the uh, studies. What else can you point to right now? And, of course, we can add these things to the show notes to demonstrate how people retain information and how animations have been used, not just in education, but also in research and, and linking ideas and, and putting things together um, as you're working through a problem. Right. So, so sort of the magic that you get um, with using animation for educational purposes can also be transferred over to research. And let me give you an example. So right now, I, I also did a, uh, a study uh, when I was a graduate student, and I asked 128 uh, professors and physicians how their perception of how accessible their information or their research was to people outside of their field. And 70% of them felt that their information was not accessible and it was too esoteric for people who were not familiar with their own field. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem because you can run into the potential or the challenge of becoming a little bit too tunnel visioned on your body of research. You know, for example, with, with cancer research, I mean, there are so many approaches. People are using oligonucleotide-based therapies right now, adenovirus-based therapies. Uh, there's a company that's using bacteria in order to trigger apoptosis. So there's there's all these different types of approaches towards the same goal, but because if you're not exactly revealed, it becomes challenging uh, to understand information that's outside of it. And animation can tear those walls down. Um, it's it's so it's it's very appropriate, especially people that are not familiar with that information. If you present it to them in an animation, it makes it much more easy to understand. This is probably very important with grant proposals, right? I mean, if you're going to get government funding from the NIH or you're looking at a foundation, making a presentation, they may not only be not in your field, they may not be in medicine at all. Um, has that been used in that application? So one of the professors that I had been speaking with, we had tinkered with the idea of actually using an animation to support the, the research that they were trying to get a grant for, um, but I've actually never seen it done. I do think it's an amazing idea, though. 
Yeah. Well, it's certainly a wave of future. How about for the research itself? Um, I mean, some of the research, um, some of the, the things that are researched are obviously beyond the, the visual eye or even beyond microscopy. If you're looking at thinking about uh, the action of electrons and everything like that, um, can you make an environment so that it would uh, act as a research um, milieu and, and maybe um, have some guesses as to what the research behavior would be, do you think? I think that's probably the holy grail of of what is possible with animation. It, and it almost transcends animation and turns mm -hmm. into uh, what we call simulation because an animation sort of implies that you've created a sort of prepackaged visual display that's able to be viewed on demand. Uh, but then you get into this interesting field of simulation. And this is actually where, like you mentioned, you can control and predefine set parameters. And based on those parameters, you can run certain experiments. And something that would be amazing if we could do is, for example, if we could create a virtual cell. So this is a living, breathing, everything like our actual cells behave. We have enough information about a cell in order to replicate it. And then we can introduce drugs into the cell. So something that's always been a point of interest in cancer research has been the PI3 kinase. And we can introduce certain molecular inhibitors to see how it inhibits PI3 kinase in this simulated event. And of course, this reduces the chances of unwanted side effects within patients because it's totally done in a virtual environment. And this, it, so I believe that is, there's tremendous potential uh, when it comes to actually simulating certain medical events uh, before actually perhaps getting to preclinical trials, trials or whatnot uh, to increase their efficacy. That's, that's fascinating. How close are we to that right now, Quentin? Not, not, not close. It's so, I mean, cells are insanely complex. And so in, in, to be able to replicate an entire cell, it I I can't imagine the computational requirements to do something like that. It, so it, it is definitely theoretical at this point, but I mean, as processor speeds improve and as we get better as, with our understanding of molecular and cellular biology, I do think that it could be possible one day. Let's um let's just jump back into a practical application right now, something that you're working on at the moment, um, kind of help, you know, animate it in our heads of our viewers a little bit. So I worked with a professor at Northwestern University, and he had developed this interesting new nanoparticle. And it is basically uh, a group of oligonucleotides, which are just short strings of DNA, and he binds them to these uh, gold nanoparticles. And when they're arranged, and so you get sort of this spherical arrangement of um, these pieces of DNA on a, uh, on a gold nanoparticle. And for whatever reason, uh, when you arrange them this way, they have really interesting characteristics uh, that are beneficial towards potential cancer treatments. Uh, and one of them is they go into cells. And usually the problem when you know, you have drugs going to cells is there's unwanted consequences. They can be toxic. Um, so, but with what he has created, it, it essentially is able to enter cells without any other, it, it, without any ancillary transfection agents or um, any other piece of machinery 
that once entered into, into the cell, you don't want there. It's only the good stuff that gets in. So we, he wanted to create an animation to actually visualize how this system worked. And the reason he wanted to do this was to, first of all, he wanted to share his information with the world and also get other professors that are potentially interested in what he was doing to, to sort of get on board. It, it, was, it was a way of explaining his research to a large, broad range of a large audience. Mm -hmm. And so we created this, it was about a two and a half long video, and it ended up winning the National Science Foundation Science Video of the Year. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Which, which was pretty cool, and it had never really been done in the academic space before. And we, we ended up writing an article in Nature about it, and it, in, in its own little way, it got researchers thinking about what's possible with their science. Because, again, we, we sort of got into this mindset that you can't really use animation in these ways because it's not traditionally how we do things. But you could 100% uh, learn cellular biology just through using animation. And you can also use it as a researcher or as a physician to help clarify what you do and how you can help people. So Quentin, obviously I'm going to get online after this interview and watch that video myself because I need to I need to visualize this myself and I'm sure our viewers do too. Um, sure. I'm thinking about a researcher right now, maybe a resident, uh, maybe someone who's uh, still in medical school thinking about these tools, how accessible are they? I mean, do you have to become a software engineer in addition to being a, a medical doctor? Um, how do you jump into this, get your toes in just to, just to start? So there, there's actually a lady by the name of uh, Janet Iwasa, and she is a professor at the University of Utah. And she is very interesting because she has a PhD in molecular biology and she knows how to create animation. So but I would consider her uh, a unicorn because usually if you're a researcher looking to, to visualize or animate your science, you're probably going to have to um, work with a or a scientific animator. Um, it, it can be a bit tedious learning the tools of the trade, and it's completely possible if, if their interest lies in learning how to use the tools. Um, but usually it requires... Um, the help of a of a scientific animator, and and actually the the article that we had published in Nature sort of gives gives some tips and tricks. So I can share that with you as well um, on the best way to communicate your science through animation. Yeah, but this is clearly uh, get an expert. Don't try this at home. You really need to. Um. I think so, and maybe that's unfortunate. Um, it, you could possibly go to, um, and, and I, well, so I've seen professors uh, in, in their PowerPoint presentations have simple animation to kind of get the point across. So mm -hmm. I can't say that it's completely uh, prohibitive, um, but it, I, I guess it sort of depends on the level that you want to take it and what you're willing uh, to do to get there. So um, maybe move from the micro level to the macro level a little bit. Our ability to image right now is incredible. Um, we can get such really great detail and such great uh, discrimination of anatomic structures and even disease processes with CT, MRI, all sorts of modalities. Um, 
is it possible to take those images and animate them so that we can give them like a real-time motion or, or a sense of, of being a, a virtual 3D space? Uh, yes, and just in, based on our conversations that Keith and I had, he had told me um, that there are actually companies out there that are currently doing this. Um, I had felt that way just from a feasibility standpoint, but then Keith had confirmed uh, that these companies actually exist. And this is really exciting because essentially you can take the CT data and reconstruct a actual computer generated model of, for example, a pelvic bone or, or whatever you're looking at. And then once you have that model, you can run certain surgical procedures on it uh, to determine the best way to approach it. And also if there's going to be possible complications along with it. And it's, and it's so easy to if there's an oops or if there's a mistake for you to backtrack and figure out, OK, what caused that and what do we need to do to not make sure that happens? Uh, it's, it's the same thing as, you know, running a flight simulation where if the pilot actually goes off course or if there's something that needs to be corrected, uh, there's no loss of life and it's fairly easy to retrace your steps. Um, another idea we had talked about is like doing a printed 3D model. And it's, this is, would be another approach to actually performing a procedure before you perform the procedure. But if you need another 3D model, uh, it either has to be available or it may take a little bit before you can get a second or third model to, again, practice your procedure. If you were doing it virtually, trying to do it um, just with the, the manipulated 3D model, what kind of processing would you need? Is this something you could do on, on your home computer your, or your desktop at work? Would you need a, a, a game uh, station or something like that? What, what do you think about that? I, I, I go back and forth. Uh, there's, in my office, there's actually a virtual reality studio here in my office, and they were tinkering with the idea of what you were looking at. How fast can we get this thing to go? And can we do it on an iPhone? Because that's basically one of the few ways or one of the ways that people would access the simulation, maybe on a desktop, laptop, but it certainly would also be accessed on mobile devices. And they were able to go at 60 frames a second. And just to give you an idea of that, uh, the standard for animation, if you've ever seen a Pixar movie, is 24 frames a second. And they were essentially able to double that and a little bit more uh, using just a simple computer graphic card. And we also, I mean, if we look at the games that are available on mobile devices today, they are pretty elaborate. So I, I have a feeling there would certainly be some hurdles in figuring out how to reduce, uh, we call it latency, between each frame. But I, I do feel with the right team and a little bit of head scratching, uh, you could get it to a point to where it would be fluid enough uh, for the position. So we're looking at an iPhone here. I know you're trying to present this through something that sits in our pockets all the time. I also know uh, with Oculus Rift and some of these other 3D applications. Mm -hmm. Where are we right now with that? Because I haven't even tried one of these. I do want to. I know there's certain stores where you can actually put them on and interact, but the interaction is, is key because if you could manipulate a three-dimensional CT representation of, say, someone's spine or their knee and turn it around and, and look at inside once you you know begin your incision, are, is the technology the point where you could do something like that, and would it be 
uh, cost effective enough to be delivered to healthcare workers? No, these these are all very good questions, and from from my standpoint and what I've and, and based on what I know and understand, it is it does seem possible, but then we have to look at first of all the cost implications and then also the feasibility of it. Um, it is certainly possible once you have a computer-generated 3D model to run simulations on it. Uh, there, there are already people out there doing this, not necessarily in the medical field, but are certainly running very complicated simulations um, in close to time. So it, it, it's something that I do not know the answer to, um, but sort of my hunch or my intuition tells me uh, that it wasn't there. And if the technology isn't already available, it's probably going to be in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I see a couple of, of great applications for this. The first one would be to learn the anatomy, to learn a technique, uh, at least by, by doing it virtually. So if, if you wanted to learn how to make the cuts of a pelvic osteotomy or how to do a certain uh, procedure in the abdomen, you would be able to do it on a uh, on a, um, a simulated abdomen or a simulated pelvis, just a random one that that lived in the computer that was part of the database. Um, the other thing, though, um, would be to be able to do specific simulations for a patient upcoming, so that you could see where the anatomy is, you could see where the blood vessels are, where you're gonna put your screws, you could see where the blood vessels are before where you were gonna do your cuts. Um, that seems like it would be a reasonably straightforward thing to do according to what you're saying. Is, is that, does it, do you have that feeling as well? That, that's the feeling that I have. And that's the amazing thing because you're not practicing a surgical procedure on just a generic our typical knee, you are practicing the procedure on the person's exact knee and their blood vessel and their circulatory system structure. And that is where I believe the beauty is, is that you're able to, once this is reconstructed from CT data, uh, which I believe is already possible, from there, from that point on, it becomes very easy um, based on the technology that we already have right now uh, to do those certain types of manipulations. Um, it's 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 very easy. It's 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 amazing what you can do once the actual model is created. So, Quentin, one of our recent guests is a surgeon up in Chicago, and he did almost the opposite of what we're talking about today. He put together a surgical simulator in residency made out of about three hundred bucks of stuff from Home Depot, and we're talking PVC pipe, we're talking a hand drill, very basic stuff, low tech. But he felt it's right. He he felt a need to get a little more hands-on time, a little more saddle time. He, he was finding that the availability of cadavers, of sawbone models was a little scarce, and he just didn't feel like he or some of the other residents were getting enough hands-on time. So by doing this and doing just a simple exercise like drill penetration, for example, you know, if you're drilling through a femur with a, with a hand drill, you obviously want to go in but not too deep and penetrate the outer cortex. So that he developed a technique for that. And by getting repetition in and getting sets, basically, kind of like a baseball player, which he was, uh, the residents were learning and accumulating these skills faster. Um, so we've talked about medicine a little bit. I know you have exposure to other industries. Give us an idea of some other industries where training has been used in this way that's kind of sped it up a little bit. That makes sense. Yeah, that sort of improved or expedited the process. Exactly. Yeah, sure. So another example is... 
well, or in general, my clients come to me. Usually when I have a client come to me, they're in the position where either their product or their service or their idea has to be explained prior for whoever they're presenting the information to for them to move forward. And whether that's making a purchase or whether it's signing a grant or whether it's or just becoming involved in the, in the cause or the purpose, uh, the information has to be presented to that person initially. And in most cases, they do not, they, they clearly understand how their technology or service works, but it's, it's really just a part of being able to explain it in a time that they're given. So for example, if it takes 15 minutes to explain what you're doing, uh, but you're only going to be given five minutes, then you know, you're in a situation where you're trying to run through it and you may run over or skip over a few important things. Um, with animation, uh, the, the research professor I had mentioned that we had worked with, he, he, he quoted saying that we explained dec decades of my research in two and a half minutes. Wow. And, and I think, and I, and I love that quote because it's just so true. It's, it's, you, you would be amazed how much information you can convey uh, using animation. Well, I'm seeing huge potential here for patient education. It's often very difficult to explain a complex procedure or, or um, treatment regimen to a patient, especially when they're going through the stress of looking at um, maybe having a big surgery coming up, trying to get caught up with what's happening to them. Are there uh, any applications out there or things you can think of using animations in this way? Definitely. So my, my uncle is a primary physician here in Dallas. And we have started working on the idea of providing patient education through the use of animation because we, so we took, I took a look and he showed me how he currently educates patients. And it's sort of a tedious process. Uh, there, there are few companies out there and they basically provide a huge database of information that you can share with patients. Um, but as you can imagine, most of it is in the form of text and it's illustrations and it's pretty, pretty basic. And also sometimes the information they, that they provide is too high level uh, for what the patient really needs to know or what they want to know. Um, so we took a list and we wrote down the 10 top 10 things that patients come to see my, my uh, uncle, who's a primary physician for. And one of them was, he, he's actually an HIV doctor. So one of the top ones was HIV. And they're not necessarily interested in how HIV works in the body. Um, but they are interested in how they got the disease in the first place. And if we can provide that information, show them an animation, showing them a little bit about how one contracts HIV uh, prior to meeting uh, with the physician, then they're already much more primed uh, for whatever conversation follows. Because right now you're running to the problem or the challenge of having to provide that information um, when you're seeing the patient. And my uncle says that it, it can be a drain on, or my, my uncle who's a primary physician says that it can be a, a drain on the time because it's, it's a complicated process to explain certain procedures um, if you don't have them in the correct format. And it's interesting because the pharmaceutical companies that call on primary physicians have kind of figured this out. And a lot of them, when they bring their iPads, usually there's some sort of animation um, on there um, during their presentations. Should have right. figured that. Right. That's right. Well, that's interesting. So, I mean, as a primary care physician, he only has so much time with each patient, and that's a challenge. Are, 
is he putting this up on his website? Is he asking patients to look at it before they come into the office so we're not taking up clinic time? Um, what's the uh, the process that he's experimented with? So it would be to to provide a just sort of a TV screen or whatnot in each patient room. And depending on what they're there to see the primary physician for, play the animation that basically answers you know, the top three or four questions that almost always come up when you're meeting a patient a patient about a certain disease and then so it, it would be playing it uh in in the actual room while they're waiting to see the the physician so they're already sort of primed uh once a physician enters the room so the so the uh treatment process actually happens starts in the waiting room so people aren't wasting their time reading old magazines or watching um uh right. home, home network or whatever so right excellent. And, and I think there'd be motivation to do so. I mean, you're sitting there in, in the waiting room, you pick up an iPad, and I mean, I would want to learn. And right. so you, and you just kind of go through, and, and, you, and it's the information that you want to know. So you'd have to research and speak to patients and ask and figure out the questions they want answers to, and then that's the information that you give them. Yeah, well, that's great. So the mission, though, is to get as much information into an animated form as possible. Um, and you, you've actually had some ideas about uh, an even grander thing about uh, databases that are animated. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. And because we have this idea of, okay, if, if, we're, if we have information about a wealth of knowledge, whether it be for scientific or medical purposes, the status quo of the standard has been, okay, we're going to store this information in the form of text. And of course, now we're sort of getting to the point to where it's available online and there are figures and graphs and some videos that accompany it. But for by and large, the way we store information and the way we think about how information should be stored is through text. And there is a potential in, in a way that I believe that we can actually transition the way of how we store this information is actually creating a database and storing medical information in the form of animation. So again, for example, if we have a body of information on cancer research, right now we are storing it completely in text and professors and researchers and physicians are having to review this information by going through and reading a paper. And as you guys know, reading papers can be tedious and, and they can be time consuming. And especially if it's not in your exact field of interest, then the barrier of understanding and the time it takes to really take something from that paper increase. But if we actually create a database where all that information is stored in animation, then a person accessing that information could say, okay, I wanna see all the research done on cancer where they target the PI3 kinase. And you would be given a just boom, 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 just windows of animation that from different researchers and different positions, different pharmaceutical companies that provide their their current understanding of how their drug targets the PI3 kinase. So you still have to search based off of keywords, right? Definitely. Um, there's no search component that you know Google can't look through images and animations yet. Right. But this could almost be like a virtual abstract. I mean, if you just wanted to very quickly get an idea of what this paper is going to be about, the animation could almost re replace the abstract in some places, right? Definitely. And I, and I think that's probably the place to start is, is supplementing the abstract in a visual form so that people could learn exactly what the, the gist of the paper is. And then if they'd like to dive into the details, then of course they can. And, and, and so, so I'm not for 
Uh, I'm certainly not for replacing uh, text or replacing what we currently have, uh, but I'm definitely for supplementing it. I believe that one of the most effective ways to supplement it is through the use of animation. Sure. Well, it does seem a shame that we have this great technology and essentially all we've done is, is scan PDFs into this great technology. So if we're gonna do that, we might as well keep them as journals on top of, um, uh, or put them, go back a step and carve them into stones or something. If, right. we, have, if we have the power to, to bring these to life, um, let's do it. it, it's a great tool. Right, and, and, and I'm actually not for using technology just for the use of technology's sake. Uh, so, for example, if you remember the 3D fad where uh, 3D TVs were coming out and it was just kind of using the technology because we had it, but there really wasn't a true application or benefit. And so I'm, I, I definitely don't feel that we should adopt this technology just because it's available. I feel that we should adopt this technology because it is a better way to do things. Yeah. What's the, the future for um, the uh, animation in um, in a medical field, uh, we talked about some some good visions of the future. But what is the? I mean, it's never going to stop because you're always going to continue to be working on it. But but where are we heading? What what kinds of things do you see in the future that will be different in terms of education, in terms of training, in terms of all these things? So I do believe that we're going to transition to accepting animation as a way to teach and educate and to share. Um, for example, I'm meeting with the Dean of Undergraduate Studies at the University of Texas at Austin next month, and we're talking about how we can use animation to teach organic chemistry. And so I, I do believe that we're going to, it, it's, it's going to take a while with anything for it to be adopted. Most people would probably say I'm crazy if I told them you could learn everything about cell biology through animation that you would ever need to know about it. Um, so it, there's, there's definitely, like with most things, there's an adoption process, but I do see it becoming a more important role uh, in the way that we teach and educate and share. And then on the larger scale of creating these animated databases, that's really going to fall on us, uh, the people who believe in the technology and our ability to push and try to get that implemented. Um, that's really going to fall on us, uh, whether or not that actually becomes something or not. Let's keep talking about the future, but let me pause for just one moment because I'm trying to think of a practical application that one of our viewers might be thinking about right now. So if I have a paper I've just put together and I want to get some attention for it, there's a lot of noise out there and you're competing for interest with people who have less and less time today. If I want to just create one of these abstract animations for my paper, and maybe I want to put a link to it on Twitter and see if I can get some, some exposure that way. You mentioned the scientific animator. This is obviously a critical colleague to have in this. Where would someone go about finding someone like that? It could be you, of course, Quentin, but um, where would they start if they wanted to give this a, give this a try and experiment with it? Uh, there's a few ways you can go about it. Uh, there is an institute called the Association of Medical Illustrators, so AMI, and uh, I believe it's .com, it may be .org. And that is a, I mean, that's, that's where you go. And there is, you can, browse artists by portfolio, um, you can see their work, and there's subsections of people who understand certain areas better than others. Some people are very good at um, anatomy, and others are good at molecular biology. And so you can actually browse and find someone that fits uh, you, and then they, they offer ways for you to actually reach that artist. Is there a uh, 
continuous war going on between the uh, medical animators and the and the static medical traders? Or are you do you have like uh, like um, bonfire nights and and uh, drum lines and things like that? Yeah, kind of. Well, I I sort of feel that way um, because I mean medical illustrators create beautiful 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 illustrations. Um, but it, the, the animators are sort of the new kids on the block. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're not, you know, they're the new kids on the block. They kind of have to prove themselves a little bit. Um, so I do think that there's a little bit of, uh, you know, is, is animation going to be something that sticks? Is this something that's just a fad? Um, I, I certainly don't believe so. But there is a little bit of that. Um, but then you also get the crossovers who do both the illustrations and the animation. So it's, it's you, a little bit of both. Are you aware of any point try to um, translate the uh, the classic illustrations into animation? I mean, we uh, we have um, uh, animators in medicine who are uh, famous. You know, ever, I've never went to a uh, a medical school lecture that didn't have an illustration by Frank Netter, for instance. Are you aware of, of a move to try to somehow animate Frank Netter's work so that it's available for the next generation who sees in 3D and sees in motion? It certainly would be possible, especially depending on how it was illustrated. If, if, it, was if it was created by a computer, it'd be much easier to break down. Yeah. Uh, and, and nice thing, or the beautiful thing about animation is that it doesn't necessarily have to look amazing in order for it to teach and there's this and there's sort of a misconception about that a you can actually get just about the same amount in terms of just learning and understanding from an animation that does beautiful uh, versus one that does so that and that was one of the points that i um, found hard to accept because i tend i like to make my animation look beautiful because I do believe that there's an emotional aspect as well. Uh, but if you're just looking at learning and teaching, then you can you can get away with it not being the most beautiful piece. Well, Quint, we're coming really close to the time here. We want to be respectful of your time. Um, maybe just a couple more questions. We'll wrap it up. Does that sound yes, good? Sounds great. That I forgot to ask the other day. Um, What's the significance of Seagull Company? Is there is that something that you can talk about on the on the uh, podcast? Uh, so it's a it's based off of the book, uh, oh, okay. John, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Excellent. And I had met, I was at a networking event uh, back when I was a graduate student, and this gentleman told me to read the book. And it, it's sort of it, there's a lot of takeaways you can get from the book, but the one I got was pursuit of perfection. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I found the company on is never you will never achieve perfection, but there's something to be said about trying to, and uh, so that's why it's called the Seagull Company. That's excellent. Good answer. And Quint, we're going to put a lot of links on the website here so everyone can explore more. But just give our viewers a quick idea how they can learn more about you and your company, and um, maybe a couple of links that you think would get them started if they want to learn more about animation and particularly medical animation definitely so my website is seagullcompany.com s-e-a-g-u-l-l -L, and then company.com and that's a good place to see the work that i've done uh it's primarily oil and gas but i do have medical work on there also uh it, the, the oil and gas was sort of out of the economic realities of running a business 
And being from an oil and gas town, that's where I found business. But I do have medical work there as well. And if, if you'd like to learn more, I highly suggest reading the paper that I published on what it's like to actually, it, it takes from the perspective of a, a researcher or a physician interested in animating their work. Um, and it basically goes through everything, the process and what to expect. So I'll definitely provide that link as well after this. Uh, that's, that's certainly a good place to go. Gwen, that's great. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on today. I'm thinking we're going to have to talk you into coming back because there's a lot more we can talk about. And at least me, I need to catch up on a few of these things, <laughs> research it myself. But uh, we would love to have you come back. And, and thank you so much for joining us. Hey, today. I, I really appreciate the time. I, I really enjoyed this. And maybe I can research more into simulations and the feasibility of it. And then we can have a talk on that some point. We'll do it. Well, Quentin Anderson, thank you again for joining us today. Again, everybody, thank you wherever and whenever you're listening to us. We hope you're having a great afternoon. Take care. This is Colin Miller, Keith Mankin, Pure Spectrum. We'll see you here next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Pure Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at purespectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at purespectrum.com.